Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known fact of the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, while working on the Ryan Murphy American Horror Story season Fire Island, he worked with his old friend and someone who had directed him many times, Joe Mantello, on the series and one day walking back to one, as it's called, Joe said, hey, I'm going to be directing uh, this musical called Here We Are. It's the last thing Stephen Sondheim was working on, co-written with David Ives. Are you interested? And Dennis, without even seeing the script, of course, said yes. And now I get to share Dennis's story of how he came to be one of the stars of Here We Are, currently performing at The Shed in New York City with one of the most glorious casts. And it is my honor to have Dennis O'Hare on the podcast today. Here's Dennis. A-OK. A-OK. Hey, everybody. I have Dennis O'Hare on the podcast today. Dennis O'Hare has been nominated three times for Emmy Awards for his work in This Is Us and American Horror Story. Other TV appearances include The Nevers, Trying, True Blood, American Gods, The Good Wife, and Big Little Lies and many more. Dennis won the Tony Award for Richard Greenberg's Take Me Out and an Obie Award for his performance in an Iliad of which he is the co-writer along with Lisa Peterson. Some of his many other stage credits include Assassins, Sweet Charity, Cabaret, Inherit the Wind, Major Barbara, Into the Woods, Ten Unknowns, and Tartuffe in London. Some of his many film credits include Infinite Storm, Swallow, Late Night, The Goldfinch, uh, The Normal Heart, Dallas Buyers Club, The Proposal, Duplicity, Milk, Charlie Wilson's War, Michael Clayton, A Mighty Heart, Half Nelson, Garden State, 21 Grams, The Anniversary Party, Private Life, and The Parting Glass, of which he is the screenwriter. When I sometimes truncate bios, sometimes I leave out people's favorite thing. So was there anything in all the things that I read and some that maybe I edited out just for time that you're like, wait, can you include blank? Because I love blank. You know, I did a play years ago at New York City Bird Show called The Devils, which was, I think, three hours and 45 minutes long. And the critics hated it. And people used to walk out on it. And I loved it. It was 16 of us performing in a really small space at New York City Bird Shop. Um, Liz Egloff played. It was Bill Camp and Lynn Cohen and Randy Danson and Kali Rosha and um, Boris MacGyver and Chris McCann, just like a crazy downtown theater crew. And I adored doing it. And um, and so I, I, I don't include that in my uh, in my bio usually because it's, you know, it's 
Well, because it's three hours and 45 minutes. But let me just to say, as I speak to you, Bill Camp and Beth Marvel live two floors above me. Um, If they were home, I'd have them come into the booth with me. Um, What a cast, what a play. We are here today for people who are just listening and won't get to see this episode. Behind me is a playbill for a new musical, uh, but it is also known as the last musical written by the great Stephen Sondheim, co-written with David Ives, directed by Joe Mantello, who directed Take Me Out, the play Dennis won the Tony for, and someone you've worked with numerous times. Um, It's at the Shed in New York City. I, I just would love to like hit mute on my side of this uh, Zoom call and just sort of from beginning to end, as much as you can share how this show came into your life, what the process has been, like from day one until today, November 6th, um, go. Uh, uh, (laughs) Whatever um, comes to mind. It started in 1962 when I was, no, actually, oddly enough, started with uh, Ryan Murphy because, you know, I've worked for Ryan for years or American Horror Story and Joe Mantello recently came into the Ryan Murphy universe. He he did the Watchers. He did the recent um, uh, Fugue, Truman Capote and and the um, and the girls. Um, And we met. Joe and I worked rather. We met a long time ago. We worked on Horror Story uh, in 2022. Uh, called New York, and it was focused on the AIDS epidemic in New York. Um, a great cast: Gideon Glick is in it, um, Russell Tovey, Zach Quinto, um, Charlie. Okay, anyway, a, a great cast, and um, Sandra Bernhard and Joe Mantello. And so Joe and I were working as actors, which I haven't done with him in years. We did milk. We did um, uh, yeah, we did a Normal Heart together, the movie in Normal Heart. But I worked with him as a director and Take Me Out in Assassins, but as an actor, very few times. So we worked together for a whole season. We were shooting in Fire Island. I was playing a guy with his hand chopped off, trying to like, you know, get him to be my boyfriend and having a humiliating scene in the surf on Fire Island, getting my, you know, my clothes wet. And in one of the takes, we're turning around and walking back to number one. And Joe goes, hey, would you ever be interested in doing a musical again? And I went, "Um, yeah, sure. Why not? And he goes, Okay, well, um, I got something to send you. Um, it's actually Sondheim's last musical. And I was like, oh, okay. And he goes, it's based on some Boonwell films. And I went, okay, I think I'm in. And he was like, well, do you want to read it first? I said, sure. And so uh, he sent me some materials and kind of a description of what it was. And, uh, and based on just that, but mostly based on the idea of working with Joe doing a musical again, doing sound sound time again, made me just say yes. You know, and and I didn't know what the part was. I didn't know if there was a part. I was playing man. I wasn't playing, you know, an identifiable character. And, um, you know, and I read the script and it was uh, hard to read and confusing. And I was a little bit like, "Eh, okay, whatever. I I get a song and and that's about it. Well, whatever. I show up in the second act. And we talked a little bit about the character I played in the second act, who was a butler who kind of revealed to be something else. And it was lacking, I thought, a lot. And not as a selfish actor, like, I want more parts, but just like, who is he? Where does he come from? What does he do? What does he want? Why is he here? Where's the payoff? And so Joe and I began to a back and forth an email about me saying, just asking questions. And 
that turned into David Ives and Joe and I talking about that character and trajectory and making quite a few changes about what his life is and where he fits in. Uh, and then, you know, at one point they sent me a demo of uh, Alex Gimignani, who is the musical director and the great actor he is. He did Assassins with me and his father, Paul Gimignani, was Sondheim's longtime conductor. So Alex recorded everything. He, and it wasn't just like, you know, sitting at the piano and playing. He did multi-tracks. He did multi-voices. He did weird orchestrations. It was a, it was a phenomenal <laughs> you know, production. And I got the, I got to have access to it. So I got to listen to the score, the Sondheim score, you know, and of course, based on that and the song that I was given, I was like, you know, hell yes, absolutely. And then we just kept in touch and it slowly came together and, and um, you know, they, they've slowly announced who else was doing it. And I think Joe was, a little skeptical that my yes back in September 22 would hold because you know how actors are something else comes along or you change your mind or whatever but I was like no this is a yes this is going to continue to be a yes you know oddly enough I was doing American Horror Story again and there was a there was a problem with scheduling which freaked everybody out but then the writer strike happened and then the actor strike happened and so suddenly I was free <laughs> and um you know the weird thing is is I live far away, I live in Paris, and being away from my family is difficult. And I couldn't normally do a musical on Broadway because I can't do the commitment. I can't do six months, I can't do a year, certainly. But this wasn't that. This was a shorter commitment. And so it was kind of perfect. And because we're on strike, oddly enough, it's an amazing thing to have a job. You know, all the act, we all feel so lucky to right. be working in this in this crazy period and a job that's not only a great job a great you know historical thing to be part of but is a wage you know right right a lot of actors don't have wages so that's so, my story well well so much for the 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 person who uh wrote in the question tell me about the audition process to which I responded to him, I don't think he will have an audition process, but he will definitely, I will definitely ask him about yeah. the process. Um, yeah. Not that anyone is above auditioning, but I would think all the time. at this point, exactly. So, uh, you know, my timeline is a little um, warped right now. I feel like because of COVID, because of the strike, keeping track of dates and time, um, I remember Sondheim sort of hinting at this, I think it was on Colbert or some late night talk show. Um, were, were you ever in contact with him directly before he passed about this show or your part in it? I was not. Um, I, you know, the last I saw him was, gosh, a while ago. Um, yeah, it did Into the Woods, uh, and um, saw him then, and I saw him oddly enough uh, on a bench in Rockefeller Center. I just come up and getting wisdom tooth extracted, and he was sitting on a bench, and I was like, "Who's that? Who's that guy?" And I was like, "Oh, it's on. I've seen him." It's familiar, so I, yeah. And we just had lovely chat, maybe like twenty minutes. We just sat there and just shot the breeze. Nobody stopped. Nobody recognized him. Nobody said anything. I was like, "This is the greatest living composer in in the world, possibly today, sitting on a bench at Rockefeller Center, and no one is." saying anything um but that was you know the last time i talked to him and then um uh 
Stephen Pasquale had been involved, I think, in three or four readings of which I think they were in 2016 and then okay. in another one in 2021. And Steve Pasquale actually just told us yesterday, we were chatting about Sondheim and about this thing, that I think it was about five days before Sondheim's death, I think he came and saw Assassins and Steve was there and they were chatting afterward, Pasquale and, and Sondheim. And they were talking about this. They were talking about this project. So that was 2021, right before his death, he was still talking about it. It was very much the thing that was in on his mind. And they found... Uh, Joe and Sam Pinkleton, our uh, movement choreographer, and Alex, I think, and David Ives, or I could be wrong who's there, went to Sondheim's house upstate, I think Connecticut, and saw on the piano music. And we're like, what's that? And it was something from uh, Here We Are. It was, it was actually an interlude that he had been working on and writing. So it was very much, you know, something that was that was on his mind that he was currently actively working on that's that's so beautiful it's yeah. so beautiful and that they saw that and and talk about feeling like you know what he'd be he'd be happy that the process was continuing and and you know given what we've done i, I think it's such a strange animal and I think he'd be thrilled with what it feels like and looks like. And, you know, God knows what he would have done. Mm -hmm. There'd be more music in the second act. Who knows? Um, from what I understand, he tried to write music for the second act and felt that the second act resisted music because the nature of the film is based on exterminating angel there the rules of the world are, are upended. And one of the things that happens in the movie is the piano dies. There's a great, a notable scene where a woman is playing a Mozart um, concerto and she goes to play it and the piano won't function. Mm -hmm. There's So there is no music. Right. And I, I'm actually, they, I think they talked about the fact that they came up against that weird idea that maybe there is no way to express musically what happens here. And in that way, it's a strange hybrid. You know, it's got a lot of dialogue in act two. Um, there is a misunderstanding that there's no music in Act Two. There is music in Act Two. There's a huge number at the top of Act Two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rachel Bay Jones uh, called Shine, and another number, a smaller number by Rachel. Um, uh, and it's, I don't want to give the scene away, but and then there's incidental music throughout. And I talked to the musicians who are great, and um, they said they have a 12 minute pause, and that's it. They have 12 minutes where they're not working. Right. And right out and read a book or whatever but otherwise they're on call because they're they're playing incidental music um it's just there's a score and throughout throughout the second act so can you talk a little bit about um the process of of building this really extraordinarily beautiful i mean anyone who's had the privilege of seeing a production that joe's directed his aesthetic if you've had the privilege of being in his house i mean joe's aesthetic is extraordinary and the way he brings his imagination and aesthetic and his collaborators all sort of come together whatever whether it's assassins or take me out or wicked like like the 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 different things he's directed it, it's you can always feel like his touch even if the worlds are completely different and and this is no exception and the thrill you know when is this running until 
Uh, January 21st. Okay. So many people will get to see it, but people listen to this all over the world. So I wouldn't really say there are spoiler alerts to talk about sort of some visual beautiful and stunning moments in the show. But one of the things that's exciting about this play that has happened before in other plays, but not on a set that is as sparse and yet gorgeous and lush at the same time, it's inexplicable how both those things can live together, but it's a Joe Mantello show. Um, Natasha Katz, you know, the incredible lighting. Uh, it's beautiful. Like you, you want it to be your apartment. Um, you are out there, uh, you know, like Iceman Cometh, right? When the actors are already at the bar and you get to walk in and just watch them behave. You, yeah. in one of the many parts you play, are out there at the beginning. You are on stage before the show has officially begun. What are you hearing people in the audience? Or can you hear audience members talking as they are waiting for the show to begin? I don't, oddly you enough. Don't? What I hear is the the, the the background of the general hum. Mm -hmm. I sort of force myself not to listen. Um, I don't look. I never look at anybody directly in the face. Um, I do look out at the audience as a whole, as if I'm looking out in a room. Yeah. And thing, but I, I have managed to never actually look at anybody, and I don't listen to anybody. It helps that Tracy Bennett, who is my, my co-conspirator in all this, she plays a variety of servers and waits, and she's an amazing performer. Fabulous also out there cleaning and she has a vacuum cleaner so she turns the vacuum cleaner on and that takes care of sound you know what i mean the, the vacuum okay cleaner. okay because it's because in the audience you just people are just freaking out like that's what you would hear people would be freaking out and i love whenever this kind of thing is happening when people take a moment to understand like are those stage hands or those actors in the show like it's a it's a slow awakening to sort of what what's about to happen. Can you talk a little bit about David Ives, who I remember meeting when I first came to New York, like he was one of the first writers I I worked with, auditioned for. He's such a funny, interesting man. Um, so obviously he's alive. He's in the room with you guys. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I'm, I'm not going to make you start at day one rehearsal, um, but it would be interesting to sort of hear about the very beginning of the process of actually putting this play together and sort of what were the touchstones as a director? What did Joe ask of you guys in terms of this is the world I want to create? How do we do this together? You know, he was, Joe is very collaborative, obviously. And Sam Pinkleton, who is the movement choreographer and Billy, his assistant, they were, you know, fully instrumental as was Alex Gimignani when it came to input and changes. Um, we had textual changes up through uh, almost opening night um, and sometimes big ones. Um, the monologues at the end of the play were added very, very late. They came in, I think they came in during previews. Those actors had to memorize those monologues. Um, we had a whole huge scene of probably seven pages that had to be memorized, worked on stage, and then it was cut. It was completely cut. Um, there were constant, I mean, the, the logistics of keeping up with the text changes, uh, uh, was I failed. My script is a disaster. The, the thing that's sitting on my desk, even now at, at my, my dressing table is a disaster. I can't read it. It is stuffed with so many versions, so many pages. <laughs> and so we had to ask for clean copies, you know, as an actor, usually you notate your script. And I, I gave up on that a long time ago because 
it was just so many changes or changes in the music constantly. You know, there, it, Alex was not writing music, but he was taking pre-existing music that Sondheim wrote and changing where it went, for instance, because, you know, sometimes Sondheim himself would write like nine or 10 or 15 versions of an interlude. And they're all not needed or they're needed in different places or that material can go here. And it was a, it was already evolving when he was doing it. So Alex, you know, took all that pre-existing music and tried to fit where, where would it go? And so that was a huge process. Um, Sam was working on the movement with the, the main six characters, Jeremy Seamus, Bobby Cannavale, Steve Pasquale, Richard Bay Jones, uh, Amber Gray and Michaela Diamond working with them to come up with organic, individualized movement that's not traditional choreography. It's discovered choreography. It's discovered movement that comes from real world. And at one point, Jeremy, um, who I think is hilarious, uh, bends down to tie a shoe, which he did in one of the, you know, what we call, we call the roads when they're in between restaurants and trying to find the next restaurant. They have this strange kind of stylized movement that implies going someplace. And Jeremy bent down to tie his shoe. And then they changed his shoe to a loafer with the shoelaces. But the choreography stayed the same. So he continued to do it. But as he does it, he realizes that he has no shoelaces. So it becomes something else. So, so many parts of the show are like that, where you start from a real, you know, literal impulse, and then it becomes tweaked. And it fits perfectly in with, with the absurdity of what Bunuel's world is. Bunuel is, he was a true surrealist. He believed in, you know, in being, I don't know, absurd. <laughs> he believed in absurdity. And that's captured, I think, in, in so many parts of the show. Um, but, you know, I found David Ives to be incredibly um, ego-free in many ways when it came to his textual changes and suggestions. Um, I, he was very open to ideas and very open to changes and would work in front of us about going, well, how about we try this? How about we try that? It was very, very uh, fluid process. Um, you know, that being said, it was very difficult for us as actors to stay memorized. It's very difficult for us to, you know, be anchored to anything. As an actor, you know, you, you match your word to your movement. You match your movement to your emotions and it all becomes a package. Well, when you change any one of those things, lines go out of your head or you change the lines and suddenly you're like, where, where do I go? Or, you know, I had many occasions where I had like a nice cross where I could do business. I open a door, I would fetch something, I would put a chair down and then they would cut seven lines. I'd be like, I, I, I have to get that chair. You want me to, I, I don't have any, well, can you do it faster? Yeah, but I had all this like, okay. That stuff happened continually. It can happen, yeah. you know, up to, you know, and that's, it seems small, but it's not small. It's it's the the architecture you're building, and see every point, even something as simple as a, you know, Rachel Bay Jones lost a monologue or a paragraph at one point when I had a big emotional thing coming up. I was using her paragraph as my springboard. You know what she said inspired me to speak, and suddenly it's cut, and I'm like, uh, why do I speak? Why do I speak? Right. So that was you. Know, a constant process that that's any new work right but um but it's hard that's yeah it is you know you mentioned so many of the cast members david hyde pierce shows up in this play as well i mean it's just it goes on and on it's an embarrassment of riches this cast 
it is um incredibly deep it's incredibly yeah. timely it's incredibly political it's incredibly funny and it is incredibly sondheim in all the the way there are there are musical moments there are through lines there are characters that are evocative and and kind of throwbacks to characters of his that you love rearranged and reassembled and brought into this very very modern production i imagine in a piece like this with the number of funny people in your show doing very serious material has there been a tremendous amount of fun now that you're open and the pressure of we are bringing the last Sondheim and now there will be no more and it's on us to, you know, do him yeah. proud. You did. Very fun to do. Um, you know, uh, the, the guy, it, one of the great things about it is that we're all in the same dressing room. There's only two dressing rooms. You know, the shed is one of those incredible architectural spaces where they forgot that actors need to use it. You know they do. They did. Um, what do you mean they need bathrooms? They, they can use the lobby. What do you mean they? What do you mean they need a place to sit? Don't they have a dressing room? Right. But where do they eat? It's just like basic things. You know they they forgot that they're human beings in the building. Um, do you leave little comments where it says please leave your comments here? You're like we have a few. We have a few right. comments. We have a book. We're going to publish a book and give it to them so they can sell it in their bookshop downstairs. Um, you know it's an incredible space and. and and one of the reasons why I think here we are is so great there is because it is a weird world. Hudson Yards is weird. It's a made up space. The High Line is weird. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a borrowed structure that's made into something else designed by Danish people. Um, it's a tourist haven. It's, it's, it's the West, the far West side. Um, it's a tower, it's an office tower. And then you get up into the into the room. It's a gorgeous lobby and a gorgeous restaurant. And then you take these endless escalators up to these endless massive hallways. Everything about it is surreal. So that you're in a weird way geared for this surreal world when you get in there. But you know the backstage life, because you know we have seven guys in one room. You know I, I'm sorry. I'm 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 I've been around a long time. I've I've you know you get some perks. And one of the perks is you get your own dressing room when you're a certain level, and we're loving it. We are loving being crammed together. It's constant joking. It's constant banter. It is so much fun. Um, the band is all crowded in the green, the very very small green room with us. So the band is there. The crew is there. The actors are there. We're all like trying to get by each other to use the one microwave. And it's actually wonderful. It really is. It, it's it's a, it makes for a really really great world. Um, uh, you know, Act One is super fun to do because it is a machine that runs in a certain way, and it's it's segmented. You know, you have you know you have my number, and then you have Tracy's number, and then you have David's number. It's built on these you know bunk bunk bunk. Yeah, and and Jin, I'm sorry, Jin's number, Jin Ha's number is amazing number with Michaela. And so each, there's a, everyone has their, their standalone moment in a way. And, you know, I get nervous before my big number because it's an incredibly difficult number and I don't want to fall off and I'm relieved when it's done and I get to go on to my other fun characters. Um, but my backstage life is hectic because I have all these wig changes and costume changes, but it's a machine. You know what I mean? You get on, it's fun, you do it, a lot of laughs. Act two is a Chekhov, Ibsen, Strindberg play. It's difficult, it's ensemble, 
it's nuance, it's acting. It, you have to figure out what you're doing at every given moment. There's a lot of emotional stuff you have to try to hit. It's difficult for everybody. So it's, it's you know, it, it's act two is not fun to do in many ways, but it's rewarding to do. Well, it's, um, it's incredible to behold as an audience member. It's, um, it's really stirring. It's really a stirring experience. And, and there's a tremendous excitement the minute one walks into this building about being one of the lucky ones who got a ticket for here we are. And I'm one of them. Um, Dennis, I have, um, I've known you a really long time and every once in a while we bump into each other and we have like these beautiful little catch-ups and they're always fragmented and rushed because we have children with us. Um, But I just want to say, I have been uh, such a fan of yours, not just because the work you do is always so good, but like the integrity with which you lead not just your work, but your person in the world and just the way in which you live your life and the things you choose to work on when you create your own work. I mean, folks, even just if you can get a copy of an Iliad, this this piece that Dennis wrote, even if you don't get to see it, you can buy it and read it. It's an incredible work. And The Parting Glass, this extraordinary film he made about his sister who committed suicide, and it is dealing with such a deep topic that touches every single human on the planet. No one, sadly, gets through life unscathed in this way in terms of being immune to this possibility. So on every level, the things you make, the things you do, the the way you create... um, an inclusive, beautiful rehearsal room for people. Um, Before I let you go, A, please come on again because we haven't even scratched the surface of all of like your story and how you fell in love with the craft and all the other things you did and how you became part of the Ryan Murphy Ensemble. Um, What an incredible thing. Uh, Is there a little known fact about you that you can share before we say au revoir? Um, I was thinking about this, and I, 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 I'm torn because I, I, I'm the one that I'm the most excited about is probably the most boring. <laughs> so um, uh, I will, let me think. Well, I'm obsessed with trees and birds. Um, I hate the fact that I don't know the name of every tree I see. Mm. I spend a lot of time and energy looking at trees and trying to figure out what they are and looking at tree books and downloading tree apps and leaf apps. And, and you know, I, I, I was during the confinement, I was in London and I took a course, um, this amazing guy who lived in Wales is called the Woodland ID course. And I sat and watched, I don't know, 75 hours of tree identification courses with little musical intros and this incredibly lovely bearded man going, um, Today, we're going to talk about the the black hawthorn. Now, the black hawthorn is not like the red hawthorn or the spiny hawthorn. And it was just like, it's incredible. And I've forgotten most of it. I lose all of it because I moved from country to country. I live in France. And guess what? Trees are different there. Right, right. Things, madly. I mean, even in England, what they call a flower is not what we call it here. They have different local names. We have a black-eyed Susan. They call it something else. We have an iris. They call it something else. And then in French, it's like, you know, um, and so the same with birds, but, you know, I, I try to teach my 
thumb and if we're going anywhere, I'll kind of go, what's that? What is that? And I wanted to get maple, oak, willow, ash, birch, beech, just the big categories, you know what I mean? Because God knows there's so many subcategories of these trees, right. pine, spruce, because I don't know there, you know, I'm, I'm, if, if I have a God, it's a tree. I just think trees are remarkable things. They're remarkable beings. There is um, a clutch of aspens uh, in, I think, Colorado or somewhere that is that was for the longest time the largest organism on earth and one of the oldest. It's 10,000 years old. And aspens are one organism. So every usually every aspen tree you see is an offshoot. So underground is a massive root or a rhizome that produces trees in a row. So aspens are almost always in a row like that. And they're considered one organism. So you can have like 500 trees that are all connected underground as an organism. And that's an aspen tree. And it's things like that. Just these crazy, crazy tree facts that the more you think about it, you're like, there are aliens and we live among them. They're right. on earth. They're having their own language, their own communication. They're doing things behind our backs. Thank God they're they're benevolent. They're not going to you know kill us because they deserve to kill us, but they're not going to. I just I love them, and so I spend a lot of time and energy not getting enough knowledge in my head, but trying on a daily basis to figure out what that thing is, what that thing is, you know. Um, anyway, that's that's my my weird little known facts. I know, but now everyone, including myself, listening to this is going to go out in their day with an, an awareness and a desire to take that in in their day. And yeah. that's in, what a gift you've just given us, like to be present with a tree as you are listening to this podcast or after you listen and you go out in the world, go identify some trees in your orbit. Um, Dennis O'Hare, thank you. And I will see you soon. You will. I have some news. Little Known Facts is now available to watch on YouTube. Hours and hours and hours of interviews that you can see my fabulous guests. And guess what it's called? Little Known Facts with Alana Levine. Catchy, right? Anyway, head on over to YouTube and watch the podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe. Also, if you want to donate to the podcast, zero pressure. But if you want to, no donation is too big or too small. I am so grateful for you for listening. But if you want to donate, just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com forward slash donations. Lastly, Little Known Facts is recorded in Brooklyn, New York, USA. My editor is Nicholas Clark. None of this happens without Nicholas. And the Little Known Facts theme song was composed and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you for listening and have an amazing day.